Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Lizelle Wellbeing Show. And in this week's episode, we are getting some expert advice on what to do when we just can't sleep. I'm joined by Catherine Pinkham, who is the founder of the Insomnia Clinic, one of the UK's only specialist insomnia services. She started the clinic after working in mental health and seeing just how many people are affected by poor sleep. Insomnia is very curable, she says, no matter how long or how severely a person suffers. And the treatment that she's found to be so successful is something called CBTI, or Cognitive Behavioural Therapy for Insomnia. Her team across the UK are on a mission to get us sleeping better without the use of medication. Catherine really is the go-to expert when it comes to tackling insomnia. And I do hope that you will be able to share this episode with anyone in your life who is really struggling to nod off. So without further ado, let's hear from Catherine. A very warm welcome to you, Catherine. Lovely to have you here. Thank you for joining us to talk about this really important topic. I mean, I think so many of us have struggled, haven't we, with sleep during lockdown and the combination of anxiety and pressures just seems to compound sleep problems. So tell us a little bit about your background before we get into it. How did you come to set up the Insomnia Clinic? Um, yeah, hi, thanks. Thank you for having me. Um, the Insomnia Clinic came about because I, my background was in mental health and as part of my mental health work, I was looking to do some training in insomnia work. And this is sort of 12, 13 years ago. And at the time, it, insomnia and poor sleep was always treated as a, a symptom of a bigger problem rather than it being treated as something on its own. And so I was looking to do some training and straight away, I just loved it. I loved the impact that it had on people's lives. Um, you know, it's, it's so negative not being able to sleep. It affects every part of our life. And actually being able to help someone sleep better with just, you know, some fairly simple changes um, was, was the most rewarding thing. So when I left the NHS, I set up one-to-one -one work, um, which, I, which I loved. Um, but I was like, actually, there's so many people struggling. There's so little access to this treatment um, that I've kind of since gone on to develop it and make it more online and more accessible. So it started from mental health. But actually, for me, sleep is a sleep, sleep for some people can be the primary problem. You know, everything else gets better if they sleep better. Absolutely. No, I, I, I totally resonate with that. Is there a clinical definition of insomnia as a condition? 
Uh, yes, so it, it's classified as if you're having uh, problems falling asleep, so taking longer than half an hour, and that's three or more nights a week. If it's been going on for longer than three months, um, I guess for me, the way that I would classify it is when it starts to feel out of your control. So you're thinking about it during the day. It's causing you anxiety. Your daytime is being impacted. You're going to bed with it on your mind and sleep is kind of becoming something that you're trying to control. Um, that for me is when it's is when it's becoming an issue. So for some people that can take a lot longer before they feel like that. For others, it could just be a couple of weeks. And then I'd be saying, look, nip it in the bud now. You don't need to yeah. wait until it gets worse. And uh, presumably there are certain times in our, our lives when we're more susceptible. I'm thinking about sort of new mothers or um, during perimenopause when estrogen dips, maybe the elderly who seem to have more issues sleeping. Do, do you find that with your work that there are key times when it's much more common to have sleep issues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some people are more predisposed to having sleep problems and insomnia. So if you are a worrier by nature, you're more likely to lie in bed worrying about things. If you had a parent who didn't sleep well, so you grew up with sort of somebody taking sleeping pills and talking a lot about sleep, that that would impact upon you. And certainly as we get older, um, we we find it harder to sleep for as long and get the same quality of sleep. So that, again, becomes a very vulnerable time because it normally also coincides with probably more work stress or being busier. Um, certainly menopause, and I know we're going to talk more about that, you know, the, yeah. the drop in the estrogen um, creates other symptoms which impact upon sleep. So there are lots of different things which can trigger poor sleep. But what I focus on um, is it doesn't matter too much what's triggered it and where it's come from. It can be an obvious cause. It could be something you, you know, you have no idea why. The trigger doesn't matter too much because it's what's keeping it going that we focus on. That that becomes the focus of the treatment. So I always encourage people, don't waste your time, you know, agonizingly trying to work out what day did this start? Because actually, in terms of treatment, it, it doesn't matter. Focus on, on the cure, which is much more positive. In terms of how much sleep we need, is it is it eight hours? I've I've read many studies that say it's between seven and eight, you know, seven and a half hours. What's your view on that? So, so my view is that everybody is different. And um, I think that if you can get eight hours of good quality sleep, then, then great. I think the majority of people don't. I always encourage people to focus on quality, not quantity. If you can get six hours of, of brilliant quality sleep where you're out for the count, you feel okay during the day, then that's good quality. And what some people do is they're getting six or seven hours of good quality sleep, but because they're striving to get eight, they're actually ruining the sleep they do get. They're putting too much pressure on it. So I always say to people, you know, sleep, of course, it's something we should prioritize. It's a fundamental pillar of our well-being. But there's lots of other things that are important in making us healthy as well. So if we overfocus on sleep and give ourselves anxiety and then we don't exercise because we're too tired, then that's not going to work anyway. So quality over quantity for, for whatever age you are. Same for new, you mentioned new parents. You know, I, I work with quite a lot of mums and we are sort of being conditioned to obsess about sleep a bit and feel like it's the key to, to everything. And of course, good sleep is important, but actually we are designed to cope with some sleep loss. Um, otherwise, babies would be born sleeping through. You know, we wouldn't be given babies who can't sleep. So I think my advice to them is always, look, of course, we can do a few things to try and get back a bit of quality sleep for you. But actually learning to accept that there are periods in life where we won't sleep well, it's completely normal and we are able to adapt to it. It doesn't mean that we're going to have long term um, effects and, and, and physical problems because of a short period of, of sleep loss. I'm interested that you talk about quality over quantity. How can we assess the quality of our sleep? Because presumably we're asleep and we're not aware of it. Yes. So I, I take a very much, a very laid back approach to sleep quality. For me, if you fall asleep fairly easily, if the majority of the time you sleep through or if you go to the toilet, you can get back to sleep, 
if you wake up the next day, you don't need to sleep during the day. You're not on your knees with exhaustion. You feel as though when you're asleep, you're asleep. For me, that's good quality. And I, I really discourage the use of tracking um, using apps and, and interesting and so t- t- tell me why because I, I I have a sleep tracker and I quite like it why why do you not like it well I, I guess it depends the reason you're using it if you sleep well and you're just interested in knowing more about your body and what's happening then it's not a bad thing because it's, it's just an information uh you know you're getting some information the the time when it becomes harmful is when we have somebody who already sleeps poorly is already stressed and anxious about it and what happens is they track their sleep which makes them even more vigilant about the sleep. And and there's a condition which is sort of new in the last few years called orthosomnia, which is a condition which is affecting people who are looking for perfect sleep and thereby creating insomnia. So I work with people who will wake up, check the tracker straight away, see that they didn't get enough deep sleep and then change their day accordingly. So suddenly they're feeling quite negative about the day. They're feeling tired because they know they didn't sleep well. And actually, how accurate are some of these trackers? You know, it's not the same as a sleep study. So I think take it with a pinch of salt. I think if it's interesting as part of a a wider, you know, look at your lifestyle. But absolutely, if you're struggling with insomnia, then tracking your sleep, because ultimately we can't micromanage it like that. You know, people will say to me, well, well, look, I can see here between three and four, I, I didn't get enough sleep. And I'm, so what? We can't micromanage hours of sleep and make them deeper in certain places like that. That's going to create insomnia because we're going to be obsessing about it. So Taken, yeah, it's right for some people, but certainly if you're struggling with sleep, and I think if you're anxious about it, then then it's never going to make things better because it doesn't treat the sleep. It just tells you you're not sleeping well, which you probably already knew. Which you knew. I think that's a really good idea. I actually mentioned it to a friend of mine um, because I use my sleep tracker purely for information. I mean, I'm fortunate. I, you know, I, I've discovered estrogen, so I, I, I do sleep really well. Um, and so for me, I'm just interested in the REM and the, the level of deep sleep that I get and how many hours and just sort of making sure over the week that it's sort of balanced. But I did mention it to a friend and, and she was immediately absolutely horrified at the idea that she might have an app that would tell her what she already knew was that she was getting rubbish sleep. So how common then in the UK, how common are sleep struggles? Um, I mean, I think I think that before the pandemic, it was uh, sort of one in four people were struggling with a real sleep problem. One in 10 would consider that they didn't sleep particularly well. Um, the since then I think we can certainly say it's it's increased I mean menopausal women unfortunately are always in the category I think 61 percent was the was the recent stat around how many menopausal or perimenopausal um, women are suffering with sleep problems as a result of menopause um, I think the pandemic really has led to a massive increase that actually people who never had an issue before um, are now struggling um, you know the, the the lockdown kind of created the perfect environment for a sleep problem you know we couldn't have asked for more things to have been in place to to ruin a sleep pattern than than a lockdown and a pandemic yeah, so. awful just awful so let's move on then to menopause specifically um for those who haven't you know been part of discussions on this before or this might be new information what actually happens to women during the menopause that will affect directly affect sleep so when, when women are approaching menopause, um, the drop in estrogen, which, um, which is, you know, the, the, the part of menopause which causes these symptoms, it increases things like the hot flushes, anxiety. Um, and what happens is they can trigger a sleep problem. So if any of us were too hot at night, we'd probably wake up. If any of us were too anxious, we'd probably wake up. So being too hot, feeling anxious are fundamental triggers for insomnia. So for women in menopause, what they have is something which is sort of giving them these triggers but what happens is what maintains the issue is that actually if if we have a week of, you know, or two or three nights of bad sleep, very quickly we're aware of it 
And so the more aware of it we become, the more we want to fix it. We're pretty intolerant to not sleeping well. You know, we can see it in our face, we can feel it in our mood. So we want to fix it. So what happens is for these women is they aren't sleeping very well because of these symptoms. They're focused on it, focusing on it during the day, which is leading them to spend more time in bed, uh, more time awake, and they're getting more and more frustrated. The hot flushes are making you feel panicky. So suddenly your bed becomes this place where rather than being somewhere restful where you don't really know what goes on because you take it for granted, to all of a sudden you're awake for two or three hours a night, desperately trying to get back to sleep. And it's very easy for the thoughts to kick in there that, you know, I'm going to feel terrible tomorrow. I'm not going to cope. I've already had a stressful day and all I needed was this good night's sleep. And what those thoughts do is they they trigger our sort of fight or flight. You know, our, our thoughts decide how we feel. And when we're having these kind of negative, stressful thoughts, your body is going to react. So the adrenaline starts, you know, the fight or flight, I need to save myself, that adrenaline starts kicking in and kind of exacerbates the problem. So you can see that menopause can trigger it, but actually how we behave and how we think is what maintains it. And that's what I work with women on that, you know, to a certain extent, maybe we need to accept that for a period your sleep won't be as good as it used to be but there are still ways that we can improve the quality that you do get. We can take the stress, we can take the pressure out of it and using techniques to kind of say, look, for now, let's put some in place and get the best sleep that we can for you, but also learning to take, to accept that maybe now it is going to be slightly disrupted. So here's some things you can do. Otherwise, let's look at other areas and ways in life that you can feel better. Interesting that you talk about triggering the fight or flight response, because I know that if I have a really important, very early morning meeting, um, or I have a plane to catch or, or there's a deadline and it's absolutely imperative that, you know, I have to get up early, that my alarm must go off and ideally I must get a really good night's sleep. Those are the nights that I have the most rubbish sleep. I mean, that's always the time when I suddenly wake up at three o'clock thinking, why am I awake? I really, really need to be asleep. So is that because that fight or flight is kind of going on even in my subconscious while I'm in bed? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. What, what you describe there is this idea that I have to sleep well tonight. The second we put that in anyone's head, it becomes quite catastrophic. You know, if I believed tonight, if I didn't sleep well, then tomorrow I would lose my job because I couldn't perform. I would never sleep tonight. There's too much pressure. And so you're right, with, a, with an early flight, with a big presentation, with a job interview, we immediately feel like in order to cope, we need to get this sleep in. So the key there is to firstly accept that actually when there's a lot of pressure on the next day, it's normal not to sleep well. And the second thing is building that belief, belief that you will cope. So however bad tonight is, I will cope. So bringing up that coping mechanism and saying to yourself, actually, this chain of thought is triggering the very thing that I'm trying to avoid. So for you in that scenario, actually being aware, the first step is just being aware, like actually this thought just went through my head and suddenly I'm thinking, oh God, I've got to sleep tonight and here I am wide awake. Actually, if we can start to reframe it and go, God, I've had sleepless nights before, I'll still perform. It's not going to ruin my whole career. You know, I'll make the flight actually we can start to take the pressure out. So a lot of this work is around the psychological part of it, rather than just looking at how can I behaviorally fix sleep. Actually, sometimes we can't sleep very well. So how are we going to go? But it doesn't matter. It's not the end of the world. And that in itself means that you sleep better. I, I love that idea. I think that's so positive. I shall definitely be taking that away and remembering that on the nights when I know that I need to get a good night's sleep. Um, or really want a good night's sleep just to say actually do you know what if it doesn't have if I don't have a good night's sleep it's fine and I, I do often tell myself actually if I'm in that moment listen I'm lying down the lights are off I can relax I can do some deep breathing I can rest my body even if my brain isn't entirely switched off 
I mean, what approach do you take at the Insomnia Clinic? You, you work with a CBT therapy, don't you? Tell us about that. Yeah, it's called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. So it's a specific CBT program for insomnia. So different to normal CBT. Right. Um, so can, can you re- recap what is CBT? And then we can look at specifically this one. So Cognitive Behavioral Therapy is looking at the thoughts and the behaviors that maintain problems. So for example, anxiety or low mood. So tackling those kind of underlying behaviors, those underlying thoughts. So in CBT, fundamentally, what we're looking at is um, what we think and how we interpret a situation will decide how we feel about it, which will decide how we behave. And that's how the, the cycle keeps going. So, you know, for example, if I'm scared of dogs, it's because my thought initially is telling me that the dog is dangerous. My body's going to react to the fact that the dog is dangerous. In my opinion, I'm going to behave differently and the cycle carries on going. So if I can tackle the thought and say, well, actually not all dogs are dangerous because I don't get attacked by all the dogs. It was just the one time when I was four that I got attacked by the one dog. So it's not about like being unrealistic and saying, oh, everything's fine. You know, I'm not scared of dogs anymore. It's just about becoming aware of how what we think becomes quite ingrained and concrete. And sometimes it's not true, but it does affect how we feel and it does affect how we behave. So CBT is a a really fantastic um, therapeutic method for anxiety, low mood, panic, any of those kind of disorders. And, and, and you, you work with that with, within the NHS, did you originally using CBT? Yeah. Yes, yes. So my original work was working with sort of mild to moderate um, mental health problems using CBT. And then we added on the insomnia part, which is a very, uh, it's all of the other stuff with a very structured approach to actually insomnia being the main, the main cause. Because I guess the difference with sleep is that technically, if I'm afraid of a dog, I could just avoid dogs for the rest of my life. It's not ideal. I'd have moments of stress when I could hear one or smell one, but I could try and formulate that life for myself. But with sleep, I have to go to bed every night. I have to at least try. So we need to take a slightly different approach because actually every single day we're going into the lion's den. We're facing the fear and the very thing we can't do. So um, it's, it, it is important that in the CBT for insomnia approach, we're actually tackling that rather than just saying, oh, we'll try and relax. Let's try not to worry about it. Actually, we need to put some things in place, both behaviorally to try and um, reset your body clock, get your circadian rhythm back in line, like, get your body to get on board, but also psychologically go, well, I have to try and do this every night. How am I going to approach that? And are there studies to back up its effectiveness? Yeah, so CPT for insomnia has been around for a long time. Uh, you know, 25, 30 years worth of um, research has gone into it. It consistently has proven to be the gold standard treatment for insomnia. Um, the frustration is that it's just not available. Uh, the NHS recommend it. It's in the NICE guidelines. The majority of GPs would, would be aware of it, but would know they have nowhere to, to send people. Um, so it's a huge gap. And I think I think it comes from this idea that it was kind of considered a secondary issue, that if we could deal with the, the menopause or if you could deal with the anxiety, then the sleep would suddenly get better. But actually, as I'm kind of, you know, as I was explaining before, sometimes we can get rid of the trigger. There's no stress anymore or the menopause is sorted. But what we're left with is this pattern where actually we've learned to go to bed and feel quite stressed. And we've learned to wake up every two hours and be in bed. So we have to we have to deal with the actual insomnia even once the trigger has has gone. But it's access. That's that's the problem. that. that yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I don't know anybody actually who's talked to their GP about insomnia who has been told about CBT for insomnia, you're much more likely to get a prescription for sleeping pills. You know, would you recommend this treatment over sleeping pills then? I mean, obviously they, they, they have side effects anyway. So, you know, leaving that aside, if we're looking purely at effectiveness. 
so, so studies show that CBT for insomnia is as effective as sleeping pills, but it's a more, but it's a more effective long-term solution. So sleeping pills, I'm not anti-sleeping pills. They are a short-term fix for a problem. And for some people it's enough. For some people that is enough to get them back into the swing of things and they can, they can manage. But what sleeping pills aren't going to do is they're not dealing with the underlying belief that you might have that you can't sleep well or the fact that actually you're just going to bed at completely the wrong time and you haven't learned how to manage your, your body clock. So I'm not anti them, but I always say to people, take the sleeping pills, but use CBT for insomnia alongside them so that you can start to slowly wean off with these techniques. Otherwise, you, we end up with people who have been taking them a long time and are so anxious about coming off them um you know and for, for women in menopause i work with lots of women in menopause who are taking sleeping pills and now they have this added thing that the doctor's going oh, i'm only going to give you them for another month and then at the end of that month oh, that's and then that's done. stressful yeah. and that's so stressful so now all of a sudden they've got a month to fix the sleeping problem so there are far better ways to, to work with the sleeping pills with the gp with a cbti program put the whole thing together as a, as a proper plan and i think that's that's you know women need to know that people need to know that that you don't have to be on them forever it's not your only option so when you start a, a, a CBTI plan, what do you feel changing? How, how does it work? What's the progression? So the first part of it is a lot of, um, is, is educating yourself about how sleep actually works. So we tend to think that if we're not sleeping well, we tend to think we need to do a lot of things to make it work. So giving up caffeine, drinking chamomile tea, taking up yoga, taking on mindfulness, listening to certain different apps and you know podcasts and whatever. So we try and do a lot to fix it. But actually, we are born with everything we need to sleep well. So the first thing that we would look at is, is how does sleep work? So in order to sleep well, we have to develop a really strong sleep drive. So when you wake up in the morning, you start building this appetite for sleep. So the appetite builds as the day goes on. And the ideal scenario is that by the time we go to bed at night, our appetite for sleep is huge. We fall asleep quickly and we take back this big, deep uh, quality sleep. And then we wake up the next morning. And so that sleep drive is fundamental. So people can be doing lots and lots of other things to fix it. But also if your sleep drive's not high, it's not going to work. So the sleep drive needs to be high. Our body clock needs to understand what to do. And that connection with our bed must be about sleep. So if you're spending sort of 50% of the time you're in bed awake, feeling quite stressed and anxious, then actually what you're teaching your body to do is, is to do the opposite of what you want it to do in bed. So the CBT program is firstly education. Understand you don't need to, if you enjoy yoga, if you enjoy mindfulness, these are all parts of the puzzle, but they're not the cure for, for insomnia. So understanding what actually controls our sleep, what's gone wrong and what's maintaining my issue. And for a lot of people, that is such a breath of fresh air to realize there is a theory behind this. You're not on your own. This idea that, you know, suddenly just giving up caffeine was going to fix the whole problem and it hasn't. So for a lot of people, the community that I create when people join my course or work with me is that they, they realize they're not alone. And that in itself starts to make things feel better. And then as time goes on, we make these changes. So first of all, you'll find that you fall asleep faster or you're waking less during the night and you can get back to sleep quicker. And then you're approaching, let's say you wake up with a hot flush. We're going to give you different techniques. So you, instead of lying there feeling tense and stressed and trying to make it go away, I encourage people to actually listen to your body, teach your own mind that actually this hot flush is rubbish. It feels horrible, but it isn't dangerous. And if we can just see it through to the end, if we can allow your heart to be racing, you're sweating, if we can just see it through to the end, what you're doing is you're teaching your body, this is a horrible experience, but I'm not going to die. I don't need to battle this. It's just my body trying to teach me something. Things are going a little bit wrong. Things are a little bit, you know, misconnected at the uh, disconnected at the moment. 
And so giving people like solid techniques that will actually change their anxiety levels and this pressure. And then, you know, towards the end, it almost becomes irrelevant where your sleep ends up. The biggest part of it is actually, how do you feel about it? Do you just feel more relaxed about it? Is the quality going to be better because of it? Absolutely. So it's not about the hours. It's about how calm and, and you know, relaxed I can feel about the, the future of sleep. That's, that's mm. my aim for people. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And then presumably you find that if women do start replacing their estrogen, that will also help physically as well, because it's all very well sort of coming to terms with the the fact that your body is giving you hot flushes and heart palpitations. But actually, if you can fix it by replacing your estrogen, surely that's that's a good option, too. Yeah, definitely. And I'm I'm not an expert in the the in HRT, but I'll always say to people, look, this is what we can do here with CBT. But actually, if there is a physical thing that's also getting in the way, absolutely, you know, try the things to tackle it and then let's do the whole lot together. Because again, just taking the estrogen might not take away the fact that you've learned to be anxious in bed. So let's absolutely. combine yeah. the two and then that, that will give them the, yeah, the best. There may well be, be other reasons, of course, outside of that. Can you carry on taking sleep medication, sleeping tablets while you're doing this program? Or do you have to sort of do cold turkey? No, absolutely not. No, I would always say to people, carry on as you are. Um, <clears throat> I encourage people to try and take them the lowest dose they can, but every night. So every night, one hour before bed, make it a consistent thing. So then when you make the CBT uh, eye changes, you can see the improvements and you know where they're coming from. And that gives you some confidence that actually this is working. And then slowly we, we would wean off, but bit by bit, you know, with the GP. And I, I always kind of help people with that just bit by bit, because weaning off sleep medication does cause poor sleep. Um, and it's called rebound, rebound insomnia. So 
we end up having, after a period of sleeping pills, we end up having even worse sleep because of the rebound effect. Now, for most people, that's excruciating because you're thinking, oh my God, that's it. I'm addicted. I'm never going to come off them. But what we can help them is say, A, it's normal. If you can just ride it out a little bit with some of these techniques, it will improve. Um, it will improve after a few days. But people need support with that. We need techniques. We need to learn how do we manage that, you know, crushing yeah, anxiety around, around that. Definitely. How long does it take to get addicted to sleeping tablets? Well, it, it's so different because some people take them for years and then I speak to them and they're only getting two hours of sleep. So technically they're not working anyway, but they still need to take, they still want to take them. Other people, you know, after just one week will say, this is not for me. I feel gro- I'm sleeping well, but I feel groggy. So it, it, it's really different for, for everybody and how they inter- interpret it. I mean, it's a quick fix. So for some people, it's the first one they'd rather try. But most people in the end will realize that they're going to need to do something more, you know, more looking at the actual root causes. It takes a bit more effort, but it, but it works long term. When we look at general advice on, on insomnia and getting a good night's sleep, there seems to be quite a lot of talk about sleep hygiene and setting a good routine. How much emphasis do you place on that as well? I mean, is that important? And, and what is sort of sleep hygiene? Yeah, so I mean, I think most people, if they go to the doctor and say they're not sleeping well, they'll be given a list of sleep hygiene measures. And that's things like give up caffeine, don't drink alcohol, make sure your bedroom's nice and cool, make sure it's dark, um, you know, those kind of things. None of them are bad advice at all. I think they're all fairly useful advice for a, for a healthier lifestyle for all of us, but they won't fix an insomnia problem. There's literally zero evidence to suggest that sleep hygiene actually fixes sleep problems. It might stop you developing one, absolutely. It might be one of the things that gets you know in the way and is, and is an issue to, to, to manage, but just doing those things doesn't fix it. And, and what it does do is it creates more pressure. So if I've given up everything, if I'm following sleep hygiene to the absolute letter and I still can't sleep, I'm going to feel very despondent. I'm going to feel very lost because I feel like I've done everything. So the harder we try, the more things we do, the worse the problem gets. So one of the beginning stages of the CBTI program is getting people to understand that and saying, actually, look, let's look at this long list of sleep hygiene. Actually, having a glass of wine every now and then is fine. It's part of life. Good. I'm glad you said that. (laughs) I mean, a lot of people will say having drinks in the evening, alcoholic drinks, helps with sleep and and makes them feel sleepy. I mean, what's the deal with alcohol? Why why don't sleep experts like alcohol? (laughs) Well, it it has a sedative effect, so it can help you to fall asleep. Um, But if you're relying on it to fall asleep, you will then get the sort of three three o'clock in the morning you know, wide awake, can't get back to sleep feeling. And, and it's it's quite non-restorative sleep. So if you're asleep under the influence, you're not going to feel particularly refreshed the next day. Um, saying that, life is all about balance. So of course, if we were going to be perfect, we'd drink no caffeine, no alcohol, and we'd, but none of us are doing that because that's not necessarily what, what we want from life. So I say, well, just take it, you know, take it, be, be reasonable. Absolutely have a glass of wine with your dinner if that's something you enjoy. Don't have a bottle every night and expect to feel well. If you have way too much on a Saturday night, it doesn't matter. The next day you're going to feel a bit rubbish, but we'll get back into the routine and you'll sort it out. So it's very much a balance for me. I think there are some sleep experts I know who would be far strict on that, but I think it's not realistic. And I'm not going to give someone a plan that I wouldn't follow myself. You know, I I know how to sleep well, but I would also have a drink and sleep poorly and go, oh, I shouldn't have had that extra glass of wine. So it's just balance. Yeah. Is, uh, do sleep issues tend to run in families? Is there a genetic component here? Um, good question. I'm not, I, I'm not sure if officially would say that there's a genetic component. I think that it would be hard to know whether it was nature or nurture. If you grew up with a parent who slept badly, yes. chances are you're going to have it on your mind. Um, yeah. if, if you grew yeah. up in a family where sleep has never been discussed, then you're probably not going to overthink it. 
Um, yes, or, or were encouraged to, to get a good night's sleep. I mean, I you know I've, I've got five children and I'm always very aware that particularly as they grow, you know, that they're doing their growing while they're sleeping and how can I encourage them to have a good night's sleep? And also being aware that teenagers tend to have different sleeping patterns. You know, I've, I've read that, you know, the fact that they lie in and don't want to get up early in the morning is not actually their fault. That's kind of how they're programmed. Does that come down to these these circadian rhythms that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, and, and you know, as we go through different phases of life, our circadian rhythm changes in the amount of sleep that we get and the amount of sleep we need, it alters. And you know, when we were teenagers, we could sleep for 14 hours a night, regardless of what we'd had to drink or what we did. And you just wake up the next day and you'd feel fine. But as we get older, we tend to find it's harder to lie in. Um, it's harder to get that deep quality sleep. We're a bit more disrupted, especially when you've got children. I guess you become more conditioned to hear things in the night. We sleep with kind of one ear open. Um, so it changes. And I think it's important that people will understand that, that actually there's no point living in the past where we used to get nine hours of solid deep sleep, because actually if you can't get it anymore, you have to let that go and go, well, I can only get seven and a half. But that's right now. That's, that's does that really reduce in time? You know, talking to my parents who are in their 80s and talking to other older friends, they seem to say that, A, they sleep less. They're waking earlier, um, much earlier in some cases, but also they seem to say that they need less sleep. I mean, do you think that is true or have they just convinced themselves that that's the case? Um, I think studies seem to show that the older that we get, we spend less time in deep sleep. It seems to be harder to get there and we spend less time in it, which would indicate that we perhaps don't need it. We're not, you know, we're not growing so much, I guess. We're um, maybe the functions of sleep are different. So it, I, I don't I'm, I'm not a sleep scientist and, and as I say because I encourage people not to overanalyze it too much I think that actually we can safely say that as you get older you're going to be more vulnerable to a sleep problem and you're probably going to have to accept less sleep but that doesn't mean that, that you're not getting enough you know if and then they do tend to wake up earlier you know older people do have that problem that actually they're and, they, and when we lack routine so if you if you're retired suddenly you haven't got to set that alarm, you, you lie in bed longer, your sleep drive's weaker. So there's still things I can do with, you know, people who are older and retired, we could still tweak it. They don't have to accept poor sleep. Mm. What advice would you give to somebody who's really lost all hope that their sleep is ever going to improve? I mean, you do hear of people, I, I was talking to a friend just the other day whose sister has always had very, very poor sleep uh, and has, you know, seemingly tried everything what what would your advice be to somebody listening to this who's thinking oh my goodness my insomnia is just you know is just unbearable and I haven't been able to find a find a, a cure for yeah. it yeah um I think I would just reassure everyone that if you haven't done a supported CBT for insomnia program then you haven't tried everything um and and I think that for a lot of people they haven't and you, they may have tried bits of it so they'll say oh I've done it before but actually what they did was relaxation and that's just one part of the program and sleep restriction is is something which um i don't know if you've heard of that uh, as a technique but a lot of people who try sleep restriction which is basically where where i would be saying to someone look at the moment you're in bed for eight hours and you're getting a terrible broken sleep and you're only getting about five hours of sleep so we're going to shorten that time in bed i'm just going to ask you to go to bed later i'm going to ask you to get up earlier because ultimately this time in the time in bed is the problem with lying there wound up and frustrated so spend less time in bed. That appetite for sleep is going to be far higher if you haven't been to bed for, for, for more hours. And so sleep restrictions are probably, you know, the most valuable, one of the most valuable tools in the program. 
but it needs to be supported with um, some anxiety work. You know, suddenly someone's staying up even later and getting up earlier. We have to support that. So I think people often have tried little bits um, and I'd love to give you some, t- I'll give you some top tips at, in, at the end as well of things people can do. Um, I think people have tried bits, but don't be despondent. If you haven't tried CBT for insomnia, if you haven't done it with proper support, then there is always, there's always that to try. Um, but I, t- I completely understand people have had, you know, I've worked with so many people who've been going to the doctor for 20 years and then suddenly they find me and they go, why has no one ever told me this before? I didn't, I didn't know that was a thing. And that's frustrating for people. And so talk us through then some of the top tips following on from that. So um, my first tip for anybody struggling with poor sleep, um, for whatever reason, whatever the trigger, whatever you might have it, is around spending less time in bed. So I've talked about that sleep drive um, and that, uh, the importance of building that appetite. Um, and for a lot of people, the idea of spending less time in bed feels completely counterintuitive because they're trying to get more sleep. But actually, in order to build that drive and to get that quality sleep, quality of sleep back again, in the short term, we need to spend less time in bed. So it's a fairly simple kind of formula around how to how to um, do the sleep restriction or the sleep, uh, the sleep scheduling, which is that work out about how many hours of sleep are you actually getting and don't obsess or, or need to track this. But just generally, you know, is it around six hours, is it around five hours? And then just shorten your sleep window to match that. Now, if you don't want to go that far down and that makes you feel anxious, don't worry. But just go to bed late, even if it's half an hour, set your alarm half an hour earlier. Because what you're doing there is not only are you creating a much stronger appetite for sleep by meaning that you're out of bed for longer, you're also, if you remain really consistent with that routine, so if you say, I'm I'm not going to go to bed till 12 and I'm always going to get up at six for the short term, you're teaching your body clock. You're saying, I'm not going to give you any more time before this. I'm not going to have any time after this. This is your window. And this is where I want you to sleep. So you're training a bit like how we do with children and babies. We train them when and how to sleep. That's really interesting. So to improve your sleep, you give yourself less of it. Yes, absolutely. The, the more your body wants it, the better quality it will become, the less you think about it, as in like, you won't go to bed trying to sleep because you will be physically ready for it. So you might not go to bed till like one in the morning and you're setting your alarm for six o'clock. Yeah, I mean, that would be a very short window. I would never say less than five hours. You know, that would be your minimum. I think 12 to six is a pretty good sort of starting point for depending on what you need to get up for work. Um, whatever happens, you just get out of bed at six o'clock. Make sure you're getting up, you're getting out and about. I know you're going to feel shattered. You're going to want to kind of, you know, lie in. But actually that last hour of dozing, it never makes you feel much better. So always think of it, this is short term. You don't have to restrict your schedule like that for the rest of your life. We're just trying to sort of wipe the slate clean, get rid of all the mess and say to your body, this is what I want you to do. And and this is how we can get the quality back. So my first tip, absolutely less time in bed. Um, What you'll do is you will strengthen your drive, but you will also realize that if you're spending less time in bed, there's less time to be anxious in bed, which in itself is is a nicer way to live. So that's my first tip. The second tip um, is around what to do if you can't sleep. So if you are in bed and you're wide awake, either you've gone to bed and not gone to sleep or it's the middle of the night, you've had a hot flush or you're just worried about something or or there's just silly things on your mind that are keeping you awake. Whatever it is, if you are wound up, if you're frustrated, leave the bedroom. So just, just give up. Don't stay in bed continuing to feel that way because you're teaching your body how to relate to your bed. Um, so get up, leave the bedroom, change your emotional state. Now, you don't, I, I read silly things about how you do something really boring like the ironing or sit in a dark room. Absolutely not. You're tortured enough. So watch telly, read a book, do something that you like. Really? Yeah. Get up, get out of bed and go and do something yeah, because else. Because if you remember, you're wide awake anyway. So all we're doing here is moving you from one place where you feel very negative, very frustrated, putting you somewhere where you'll probably feel a little bit more relaxed. You can distract yourself and do something. And this is, again, this is not forever. 
whilst you're restricting your window, whilst you're managing the anxiety, your sleep will start to improve. So this is for those moments when actually you just can't sleep and you're feeling, because that, that leaves you exhausted. Spending a lot of time in bed awake uh, with adrenaline, with anxiety, will leave you feeling even more tired and exhausted the next day. So give up, go, out, uh, go downstairs. Um, when you feel sleepy, go back to bed. You know, you're, you're far more likely to fall asleep if you leave the room for half an hour or even for 10 minutes than you are if you just lie there. Um, whatever happens, you're still going to get it with that alarm. So I know this sounds a little bit brutal, but actually you're already not enjoying sleep as it is. You know, these, this is advice for people who aren't sleeping well. Um, and it's, and it's short term. So, so those are my kind of behavioral tips. Go to bed later. If you cannot sleep, just get out of bed. Don't sleep, don't lie in bed awake. Set that alarm. Don't look at the clock, you know, turn the clock to the wall. Um, don't allow yourself to kind of get into the, 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 the pressure of having to see the time and, and it kickstarting those anxieties. And then, and then the, the last uh, last sort of couple of tips are more around the cognitive stuff that actually um, most of us don't really have a lot of time during the day to process our thoughts. You know, we're very busy. If we're not busy, we're probably on our phones anyway. So there's a lot of uh, time during the day where we're, where we're thinking and we're, we're doing. Um, we don't tend to make a lot of time to process. The problem is if we don't make time to process, your, your brain is going to find a time and the perfect time is three o'clock in the morning after you've had a hot flush. Oh no. Yeah, when you've woken up. So instead, just like how we're teaching you when to sleep, actually give your brain a slot to process things. And what most of us tend to do is if we're worried about something, the tendency is to try and ignore it, try and um, bury it, go, oh, it's silly anyway, I can't do anything about it, forget it. And we know that doesn't work. That doesn't make something go away just because you rationally know that you shouldn't be worrying about it. So my advice to everybody is every day, a 20 minute window with a pen and paper, and you write down everything that's in your head. And it's, some of these are worries, some of these are just thoughts, some of these are just to-dos. Whatever it is, just get it all out of your head because it's a really therapeutic way of saying to your, your mind, I'm not ignoring this stuff. I'm making time to think about it. I'll, I'll deal with the things I can deal with on this list. Some of the things I'm gonna to have to accept are hypothetical. They're not real worries. I can't do anything about them at the moment, but I'm gonna accept that they're there. And what you're doing is you're training your brain to say, I will, I will manage this stuff, but not at three o'clock in the morning. I'm going to do it now with a pen and paper when I can actually make a plan. That's so interesting. Is that a bit like journaling, I guess? You're, you're, putting, you're committing your thoughts to paper. Is that one of the reasons why journaling works? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the only difference with this and journaling is that um, I, if there's specific worries, I get people to think of them in terms of what's a real worry and what's a hypothetical. Now, that's not to say that a hypothetical worry doesn't feel just as threatening as a real one. But for example, if we were to say, I have lost my job, that's a real problem. Now, when you have lost your job, funnily enough, you're not actually worrying about losing it anymore because you have. Now you're planning. Now you can do something. Whereas if you're just worrying, if I don't sleep well, I'm going to lose my job. Actually, you're living in this sort of imaginary world where a bad thing happened. But you can't actually do anything about it. And it's a really good way of seeing that in black and white on paper going, God, I've got a thousand things on this hypothetical list. I've actually only got three on the real list. And I can't on the real list. Yes, great idea. It's a slightly yeah, different journaling, that. but it's it's like a cognitive cognitive technique. Um, and that leads into my final sort of tip, especially for people who are having hot flushes, but actually for anyone who's got insomnia and anxiety in the night, is when you feel that hot flush or when you feel that panicky sensation, that idea of just sitting with it. Don't don't feel like you have to jump out of bed and change it. And it's really hard to do that for people because we never, ever sit with something that feels that uncomfortable. It'd be the equivalent, again, if I use the analogy of being scared of a dog, the, the cure for that is to sit in a room with a dog, learn to let your body feel all that experience, feel all that fear, but then realize that actually this dog isn't going to kill me. So this fear is misplaced. I'm not in danger and, and let it subside. 
And for women in menopause, that's a really useful technique to learn that a hot flash is awful, but it's not life-threatening. And if you can teach your brain to not catastrophize, you can kind of get out of that cycle. So again, reframing how we feel about these symptoms to be they're awful, but it is just our body doing whatever in this moment it feels like I, I needed, but it's misplaced. And I, you know, thank you, but I, I can cope with this on my own. But we can cope. It's so interesting, Catherine. I've learned so much and I'm sure everybody listening today has taken many many of your comments on board and will be remembering them perhaps in the small hours yes, <laughs> yes. As, as we sleep and I'll make sure that we put all the links to your online course talking about CBTI um, and just spreading the word making making this far more widely known because it's it's such a helpful resource thank you so much for being with us Thanks today thank Cheers, you thank you And that's it for today's episode. Huge thanks to Catherine for her insight. And as always, you will find all the links and the resources mentioned over on lazalwellbeing.com. There you can also sign up for the free weekly newsletter filled with the latest developments in the world of well-being. Plenty on sleep too. And thank you to all who have left us such lovely reviews. It really does help others to find the show, especially on iTunes. So until the next time, go well. Bye-bye. Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, with production by Amaryllis Earle and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue. With thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, and guest booker, Millie de la Morinière. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.